Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Where the nation stands now on younger kids and COVID vaccines. If we can get a good portion of those 28 million children of this age group vaccinated, it's going to really help a lot. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Redrawing city council district maps and the criticism. There's only so many ways you can do this. Obviously, when you come down to moving one street here or there, anything can happen. But the general thrust of where they're headed, I think they're kind of on a pathway that they're not going to return from. Why black renters in San Diego are the most cost burdened in the nation. Plus a profile on the local musician who taught Carlos Santana how to play strings. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. A key FDA advisory panel has recommended a lower dose of the Pfizer vaccine for the nation's 28 million children aged 5 to 11. A final decision from the agency is expected to be rendered within days. Roughly 300,000 unvaccinated children in that age group live here in San Diego, making the recent authorization a major step in ongoing efforts to contain the COVID-19 pandemic. Joining us once again to discuss the development and more is Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Jay. Great to be with you. So can you break down this final authorization process for us? What needs to happen before parents can sign their kids up for their doses? Well, it won't be long now, anticipating the first week of November when we have final go-ahead for these 5 to 11 year olds to get the 10 micrograms Pfizer dose. And then also in the queue is the Moderna vaccine. So that is a higher dose of the mRNA, half of the adult dose. And that is a a, a bigger trial, almost twice the size. And so we're expecting that one to also get approved sometime in the month of November. Is vaccinating this younger age group one of the final pieces in getting through this pandemic? 
Well, it's certainly an essential part of building our Delta immunity wall and then potentially subsequent versions of the virus because we're well short of the population level immunity that we need to block this virus, to get prevent the chain of spread that isn't just among children, but of course, uh, adults as well. So children are an important part. They're a vector or a conduit in this process. And so even though most children, if they got COVID, would get through it okay, some will get quite ill. And also, I think what's important to not forget is that those who get a COVID infection can be affected with the so-called long COVID, that is chronic symptoms. Not as frequent as adults, but still it can occur. And then most importantly, this transmission chain that we can block. So if we can get a good portion of those 28 million children of this age group uh, vaccinated, it's going to really help a lot to get the U.S. and San Diego in great shape. And if you could, you know, what key data findings were reviewed by the panel with regards to side effects and efficacy for children? Well, the side effects uh, were similar as to adults and teens. Uh, they're really the, the same sort of thing as a local reaction, arms uh, discomfort, uh, and you know fatigue and other symptoms that are kind of a mild flu case that can last a day or two. So the symptoms are, and the side effects are very similar. Can parents expect eventual approval of the vaccine for children under five? And if so, what's the timeline on that? That's the last step. So this isn't the last one. There's one more group. Uh, That one is not going to be probably until early next year because uh, those trials uh, in even younger children are ongoing. Health officials are currently monitoring a sub-variant of Delta known as Delta Plus. Should this be a cause of concern? The nomenclature is AY.4.2, not to get too fancy, but it's about 10% of the cases in the UK but it has very little change in mutations from the original Delta strain. Uh, I just don't see it as a threat because Delta is so hyper contagious and there's minimal changes in this structure of this virus uh, strain or or, uh, variant to make it any worse than Delta. We're going to have a hopefully uh, not see anything worse than Delta. Right now, it's taken over the whole world as far as the dominant strain. It's going to be tough for another virus version to overtake it. I don't see this one as the one that could do that. While overall cases are down since the September surge, we are seeing a slight uptick in deaths nationally. What does this say about how we're handling the fourth wave of this pandemic? Well, we certainly haven't handled it as well as we could have. I mean, San Diego's done fairly well, but if you look around the country, there's still a lot of deaths, over 1,500 per day, as you noted. And it's partly because we didn't vaccinate the high-risk people nearly as well as other countries. Many countries got people over age 60, 65, 99% vaccinated. We're well short of that. And those are the people who are accounting for a large proportion of the deaths. So we have had to deal with anti-vaccine, anti-science, hesitancy, misinformation, all these factors that have prevented the high-risk people from getting vaccinated. In addition, we have the problem of waning immunity. Those who are out more than six months, where if they are in a high-risk group, such as over age 50 or 60, they are the ones that are getting sick and some of them getting hospitalized. So we've got to get the boosters in those people as soon as possible once they've reached around that six-month time frame. 
And as you mentioned, many Americans still remain unvaccinated ahead of the holidays. What guidance would you give to those who are vaccinated about being around unvaccinated people? This is a concern because, as everyone knows, you could have the virus and not ever be symptomatic or be happening before you develop the symptom and spread it. And even vaccinated people at a lower level can do this. So if you're going to be getting together with people over the holidays, uh, this is a, a, a cause for concern. If you're in areas where there's very low circulating virus, where fortunately uh, in many parts of California, that's the case, it's not as much of a worry. But if you're in places like Montana and Idaho, Alaska, many places where the virus is still raging, if it's all over the place, that would not be a good place to take any chances. Of course, if we have rapid tests, and you could get each person that you're going to get together with, with a rapid home test and know the answer in minutes, that would help add security and, and confidence. But a lot of those rapid tests are too darn expensive. They're not widely available. And this is another shortcoming of the U.S. strategy. Hmm. And, and I want to circle back to uh, parents with children under the age of five. Since the vaccine for them could be much further down the line, what advice do you have uh, for them in terms of limiting exposure to those children under the age of five? Well, the, the, the children under the age of five shouldn't be a concern as long as the older children and the adults are vaccinated. The best protection we can have for the youngest is for everyone else in a household to get vaccinated. So if parents have not been vaccinated and they're worried about their young children, they better get it now. And also, if they are um, in a waning immunity category, that'd be another reason to stay maximally protected and get a booster shot. So it, there shouldn't be a concern for the youngest kids as long as household members are all vaccinated. I've been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jade. The city of San Diego is moving closer to redrawing the lines for city council districts. A preliminary map was hammered out after public comment last week. The Volunteer Redistricting Committee is tasked with using 2020 census numbers to create council districts with a similar number of residents. A population boom in the northern coastal region of the city means that there will be significant changes in some council boundaries. And some of those proposed changes are drawing criticism, especially when community leaders in Claremont see their neighborhood divided up into four different districts. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter David Garrick. David, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Tell us more about what the aim is in redrawing city council districts. Has our population shifted significantly since the last census? Uh, it has, I think, more than people had predicted. As you mentioned, north coastal areas, La Jolla and that, that part of town has grown in population. And so has uh, District 3, which is North Park, Hillcrest, downtown Little Italy. Uh, those two areas have grown a lot. And then areas in the southern part of the city have shrunk in population. I wouldn't say significantly, but significantly enough where there's going to be some shifting of these, of these boundary lines. So last week, the redistricting committee introduced four proposed maps. How did they get synthesized down to this one preliminary map? 
Well, it was an interesting uh, process to watch live. You had uh, these uh, volunteer commissioners uh, in a Zoom meeting, and they were trying to figure out uh, which of the four maps they liked the best. They picked one of them. It was called Map One. Uh, but they decided, well, we have a few problems with it. Let's see if we can solve those. And they spent a lot of time moving a lot of neighborhoods around. And it was a really interesting, if you like politics, it was an interesting process to watch. But they went from uh, one of the proposals, map one, to the thing that they proposed as a final choice uh, at the end, an interim choice, but a final choice for that meeting. Uh, and that's what's raised so much uh, controversy in Claremont. Yeah. How is Claremont divided up in this proposal? It's divided four ways, which as far as we can tell is unprecedented since the city went to uh, district voting in 1988. Basically, uh, south of Balboa Avenue and east of Tecolote Canyon would be in District 7. Uh, south of Balboa and west of the canyon would be in District 2. Uh, north of Balboa and west of Genesee Avenue would be in District 1. And north of Balboa and east of Genesee Avenue would be in District 6, which seems kind of crazy. Wow. So Claremont community leaders are not pleased with this. They're warning the division will hurt the neighborhood. How would it hurt the neighborhood? Well, I think the way that a neighborhood lobbies for things is they talk to their council person and that represents their district, and they meet with that person and they express their concerns and their desires and their hopes and their dreams to that person. And that person lobbies on their behalf at City Hall. If your community is divided among four city council districts, then you have four city council people to talk to. Neither one of them cares all that much about you because you're only a small sliver of their district. So it just sort of dilutes the power and influence and the lobbying ability that the community would have. The preliminary map also keeps UC San Diego in District 1. There's been a big push by some students to move the campus into District 6. Is that idea off the table now? Definitely not. I mean, I think the, the folks stressed, and I tried to stress in my stories, that they're still working through this. These are all rough drafts. Pretty much anything could happen. But obviously, neighborhoods like to see how the thing progresses because they want to you know, have whatever they're lobbying for happen. Right now, it looks like the UCSD students that want to be uh, leave District 1 are on the wrong side of, of victory. They're, it looks like they're probably not going to get what they want. But there's definitely more negotiating and more haggling coming in the next 10 days or so. I guess November 15th is the deadline that the committee has set for its final decision. One of the reasons students at UC San Diego wanted to move the school from District 1 to District 6 is to create a predominantly Asian district in District 6. So if UC San Diego doesn't move into District 6, will San Diego have a predominantly Asian district? You know, San Diego already has one. District 6 already is about 34% Asian. The question is, is that enough, right? I think that folks feel like maybe it should be even more heavily Asian. Uh, and that's what the decision will come down to. If UCSD gets moved into it, at least among the, the versions I've seen, it gets to about 41, 42% Asian. If they keep UCSD in District 1, but move some other neighborhoods, it gets to about 38%. So either way, it's going to be more than it is now, which is 34%. The question is, how much is enough? And that's sort of a subjective decision that's on behalf of the commission. You've kind of hinted at this, but let me ask you directly. How preliminary is this preliminary council district map? Do members of the redistricting committee say that they are open to making significant changes to the map because they've already made significant changes to create this map in the first place? Right. I mean, I guess I would say anything is possible, but I think some of the decisions they made, they feel confident are the right decisions. And there's only so many ways you can do this. Obviously, when you come down to moving one street here or there, anything can happen. But the general thrust of where they're headed, I think they're kind of on a pathway that they're not going to return from. So I think that they're 85 percent of the way there, I would say. How does the process continue from here? 
And one thing to keep in note is that the city council has no role in this. This is an independent commission. So this commission, by November 15th, they will have picked a preliminary map. Then they're required, a, a final preliminary map. Then they're required to hold five public hearings on it. And then on December 15th, they will adopt a final map. And that's it. It does not go to the city council. It does not go anywhere else. The only way it could be changed is with lawsuits. And how can people take a look at the preliminary map and form their own opinions and get involved in this? It's pretty amazing. They have this tool where you can actually make your own map, and and it's not that hard. You don't have to be technically savvy to really do it. Uh, The city says it has its own redistricting commission website. You go there and you can look at all the maps, and then it gives you, it encourages you, urges you to go in and try to make your own uh, and study all the numbers and all the math and all the neighborhoods. It's pretty, pretty fascinating. Are there any other districts in the city that are getting a major overhaul? District 5 is, is an interesting one because the southern edge of, uh, of Rancho Peñasquitas Park Village, which has 10,000 residents, was shaved off 10 years ago the last time this happened. And the residents in that neighborhood strongly want to be reunited with Rancho Peñasquitas. They're in the Poway Unified School District together. They say they have a lot in common. That is a key decision that the District Commission faces. That's actually what got them into trouble last Thursday night. They tried to reunite Rancho Peñasquitas, and they made all these reverberative changes, and that's what sort of led to Claremont being broken up into four parts. So that's another key decision for the District Commission to decide. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune reporter David Garrick. David, thank you. Thanks. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Rising rents and limited affordable housing are difficult for many San Diegans, but KPBS race and equity reporter Christina Kim says the housing market is particularly challenging for black renters. San Diego is the worst place to be a black renter in the whole country, according to a new study by Zillow, an online real estate company. We found that rent burners are the highest for Black households in San Diego, and Black renters in San Diego spend more than half of their income, or 53% of their income, on rents. That's Nancy Wu. She's the economist at Zillow who led the study. So what exactly does it mean to be rent burdened? It means a person pays 30% or more of their income on rent. So Black people here in San Diego are on average very rent burdened. That means they have a lot less money left for anything else, like saving to buy a home or a medical emergency. Honestly, uh, it's not surprising. Um, I grew up in Southeast. Gabrielle Hines is a school counselor in San Diego. She's Black and grew up in the Skyline neighborhood, surrounded by family and friends. She and her family recently moved because they couldn't afford the rising rents in Southeast. They found a more affordable option in La Mesa, but the rent is still expensive. 
I was making uh, 18 an hour, but I recently got my master's and I'm a school counselor now and I'm making 28 an hour. And it's crazy because it, it doesn't feel like it um, just because rent is so high. Staying in Southeast would have meant spending more than 30 percent of their income on rent. With the cost of daycare and other bills adding up, it just wasn't an option for them. And she says she's not alone. A lot of other people in her once predominantly black neighborhood of San Diego are also being pushed out. And um, it almost makes people feel like, you know, they're not good enough to live in, in the neighborhoods that they, they came from. San Diego rents are expensive and getting increasingly more so for renters across all demographics, says Nancy Wu from Zillow. Uh, across the country, we've seen that in San Diego, for example, the pandemic has has increased the rent burden across households. Latino renters in San Diego pay nearly 40 percent of their income on rent, and Asian and white renters both pay more than 30 percent on average. Still, black renters in San Diego pay the most at 53 percent. That's about 18 percent more than the national average. By our calculation, San Diego had the biggest discrepancy in gross income between black renters and other renters, as well as black renters in San Diego versus elsewhere. That tied to rising rental costs and less rental affordability is the reason why we're seeing the biggest discrepancy and the biggest rent burden for black renters in San Diego. Wu says these inequities are a reflection of historic racial discrimination combined with low household incomes and rising rents. She found that black renters in San Diego made an average of $3,493 a month in August, when the average monthly rent was $1,835. In a statement to KPBS, Mayor Todd Gloria called the study results infuriating but not surprising. He added, that's why one of the first things I did after being sworn in as mayor was to make equity central to everything we do and every decision we make. Mayoral spokesperson David Rowland said the city has already invested in rental assistance programs and launched several business and youth development programs aimed at San Diego's communities of color. But these solutions take time. And for now, renters like Gabrielle Hines are still paying a lot of their income on rent. We're, we're pretty stressed. You know, it feels like, uh, you know, we're barely making it. Joining me is KPBS race and equity reporter Christina Kim. Christina, welcome. Hey, Maureen, thanks for having me. You know, it's surprising that San Diego is the place where black renters are the most overburdened. What about places that have even higher rents like San Francisco and New York? Yeah, that's what I thought as well. San Diego has an expensive rental market, but to your point, San Francisco and New York are always vying for the first when it comes to high cost of living. The way that Zillow economists calculated this was by looking at census data on average salaries based on race and ethnicity, as well as Zillow's own marketplace insights that track the average rental prices of a particular area. So what they, when they ran that, what they found is that San Diego black renters have lower salaries and pay higher rents than anywhere else in the country, at least when they ran that data in August. So it's not so much about where the rent is highest, but so much as where are wages lower and rents higher. And as they found it for black renters, it's here in San Diego. And Zillow found that the average black household in San Diego pays 53% of their income on rent. So does that mean some families are paying even more? It's hard to imagine, but yes, that's right. An average is calculated by adding up the sum of a total and dividing it by the total number of values. So when we hear that black households pay more than half of their income on rent, that does mean that some households are paying even more. 
What's the situation in other places around the country? Right. So we've been talking about San Diego specifically, but nationwide, the numbers look a little different with black households paying 34 percent of their income, Latinos paying 32 percent and white households paying 29 percent and Asian households paying the lowest at 26 percent. Interestingly enough, the place where black renters are also highly rempered and is also here in California, in Sacramento, actually, where they spend on average 52 percent of their income. So what that tells us is that in both Sacramento and San Diego, we're seeing rising rents and wages that aren't catching up. Now, your report says historic racial discrimination plays a role in this rent burden for black San Diegans. Can you tell us how? Yeah, the number one question when reports like this come out is how did this happen and how do we fix this inequity? But the answer is that there's no single answer, or as the Zillow study itself shows, says, there's no silver bullet. But we can't understand how we got here. I know Midday just had a housing special yesterday looking at historic inequities in housing, so it's not going to come as news to your listeners. But the thing is, is that practices like redlining, racially restrictive covenants, a lack of investment in social housing or affordable housing over the past few years, coupled with the fact that we know that wages in San Diego have not kept the pace, has created the unequal housing market that we have today. Why are traditionally black neighborhoods like Southeast San Diego becoming too expensive for some black renters? Well, when there's not enough homes either to buy or rent and the demand is high, that means prices are going to go up, including in areas that may have historically been more affordable. And as those prices go up, the very people that have always lived there and made up that community are finding themselves priced out. Gabrielle, who we hear in my story, is a renter who grew up in Skyline but left for La Mesa. And she actually told me she knows a lot of people who are heading out to El Cajon and other areas. She's actually considering moving out further herself to Riverside County and just commuting to her job in Kearney Mesa. Well, while black renters are facing the largest burden, it seems like no demographic in San Diego escapes an average rent burden of over 30 percent. Has this situation gotten worse? It has. In San Diego, rents have gone up during the pandemic, and every single racial demographic is more rent burdened than they were before the pandemic. That's not the case in all cities. L.A., for instance, actually saw lower rents. But here in San Diego and places like New York and Sacramento, that's absolutely the case. And how is San Diego's rental assistance program helping struggling families with their rent burden? Well, as you know, there's the COVID-19 emergency rental help. But then, of course, the city's always had rental assistance programs in the form of Section 8 vouchers, which is essentially rental help for people who can't afford rent. And in addition to that, there's project-specific housing as well as some federal public housing. But right now, there's a waiting list that can take up to a decade. So in terms of assistance, there's way more emergency COVID-19 funds available than anything else. Um, The mayor's office did point out to recent investments in career development programs and small business grants aimed at communities of color. But those, as I stay in the story, take longer to take effect. So it's definitely tough right now. I've been speaking with KPBS race and equity reporter Christina Kim. Christina, thanks. Thanks, Maureen. During October, everywhere you turn, there are pink ribbons and fundraisers to help raise money for research and awareness of a disease that affects one in eight women. Without question, research funding has helped advance life-saving diagnosis and treatment of breast cancer. 
For many, that's reason to celebrate, but for some living with or who have had breast cancer, the month of October can be a constant reminder of the most traumatic experience in their life, and not just for the 3.8 million survivors in the U.S., but for those who have lost someone to breast cancer as well. So how can those impacted cope, and how can those close to them help? Joining me is Dr. Carrie Constantini, who is a breast medical oncologist with Scripps MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Constantini, welcome. Thank you. So you offer a lot of support to your patients who are undergoing treatment for breast cancer or perhaps just finished treatment. In some ways, the month of October is a moment to celebrate empowerment, but for many, it can be distressing. Can you talk about that? I think it's important to recognize that any breast cancer patient, either undergoing treatment or a breast cancer survivor, is going to experience the month of October and and any month differently. Some identify very strongly as a cancer survivor and participate fully in different events that occur, while others are more introspective and private and focus on moving forward with different aspects of their life. Everyone processes this situation uniquely. What are some ways you help patients and their families cope with the feelings of anxiety and trauma that may be triggered by breast cancer awareness campaigns? Here at Scripps FD Anderson, we try to provide a comprehensive individual care for not only the patients, but also their families and really utilizing our compassionate care for the whole person. And that, of course, involves their medical complaints and issues, but also what's going on with them emotionally and helping them understand that there are different resources available in terms of support groups. We also have a wellness and ongoing care survivorship clinic here at Scripps MD Anderson. Some people prefer to speak one-on-one with individuals while others do enjoy and, and find compassion in support group settings. What are what have you heard um, over the month of October here uh, from many of your patients in regards to their mental health? I've heard all aspects of it. I have patients who come in celebrating the month, um, participating in walks and other events that occur. And others tell me it's a difficult month for them and one that they try to avoid some of those different triggers for them. So it's okay to limit your exposure to some of those events that may be upsetting to individuals and set boundaries with not only friends and family, but also work colleagues who might be encouraging different activities for this month. Also understanding that they're not alone in these feelings and they should reach out to other trusted support resources that they have either in their own network or other breast cancer survivors that they've identified with to help with different emotions that can occur during this month. How can people around those impacted by breast cancer be be of support? I think it's important for family and friends of breast cancer survivors to understand that this may not be a celebratory time for everyone and instead listen, observe a breast cancer's kind of demeanor and mood during this month and be a good listener. That's what our breast cancer survivors need is just support and that support may come in different ways. Mm. That in mind, what do you think people need to really understand about a serious illness like breast cancer? It's important to know that breast cancer does affect a lot of women. As you mentioned, there are 3.8 million breast cancer survivors currently in the United States, and one in eight women are diagnosed with breast cancer. It's important to know that early detection is important and that 
when we find a breast cancer early, the cure rates are in the high 90% for these women. But understanding that it impacts women very differently and to have that support is important for family and friends. Many people want to give money to support breast cancer research, but how do you know if the organization you'd like to give to is in fact research-based? I mean, what are the best ways to support research? There are different opportunities. So looking at national sites, um, they will all list where their philanthropic gifts are are going to, if it's research-focused or other programs. Here at, at Scripps MD Anderson, Individuals who wish to contribute can be specific as to the intent of their gift for research or, like I said, other support services that breast cancer patients utilize. And how impactful do you think Breast Cancer Awareness Month is in terms of advancing uh, the needed research? I think it's been very impactful. It raises awareness. So for that, those women who maybe haven't had their mammogram due to COVID pandemic or fears, it can be, for some women, their first step towards scheduling that first mammogram appointment. I think that's important. And as you mentioned, there is significant resources and research efforts into breast cancer, and many of them have come to fruition based on funds that are raised during Breast Cancer Awareness Month. I've been speaking with Dr. Carrie Constantini, who is a breast medical oncologist with Scripps MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Constantini, thank you so much. Thank you. For the moment, a proposal to lower the age on San Diego Unified's COVID vaccination mandate is on hold. It was prompted by one of the district's high school students who also happens to be a voting member of the board. KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez introduces us to a young man who's on a mission to make sure student voices are heard. Did he actually work with his father, or was that an indirect connection? That's a great question. Zachary Patterson is a student who likes to ask lots of questions. On this day, the questions come in Miss Huzar's English literature class at University City High School. Zachary is a senior, and like many of his classmates preparing for graduation, he's stressed. I'm in AP classes. I'm a student that's working hard, but hands down, you know, it takes a toll on my mental health. It does take a toll on me being able to do this. I guess I do it because I love it. He's not just talking about class assignments. Zachary has another love. Raise your right hand and repeat after me. I state your name. I, Zachary Patterson. In June, he was sworn in for a second term as the student member of the San Diego Unified School District Board of Education. Cindy Martin, the former superintendent and current U.S. Deputy Secretary of Education, did the honor online. Zachary says she's one of his mentors. I would love to be able to go to D.C., maybe work uh, in the Department of Education with my old superintendent, my good friend, Cindy Martin. I think that would be an incredible opportunity and experience. For now, he's committed to serve the more than 100,000 students in the San Diego district. He is the first ever student board member, a position he started campaigning for in seventh grade. With the help of others, he created a student advisory board first, before being elected to the school board in 2019. I get to speak as a board member, but in the end, 95% of my experiences are formed right here on my campus. 
in talking to students in that relationship that I have, not as a board member to constituent, but as student to student, as peer to peer. What's the program they use? Is it like Raz Kids? Yeah, but we, we're using Raz Kids. Uh... Is there a program for in Espanol? Zachary is fluent in Spanish, which was helpful on a tour of the Longfellow K-8 dual language immersion program. The tour is where he collects information and concerns from students and administrators to take back to the school board. Along with campus tours, there are press conferences, too. If we get vaccinated, if we stay strong, we send a message that we believe in science. A month ago, Zachary was the board member who proposed lowering the age of the COVID vaccination mandate for students as young as 12 years old following the science and lead of the Los Angeles and Oakland school districts. He is also responsible for creation of a student bill of rights and leading the effort to add a mental health curriculum for students. Zachary says competing on his high school cross-country team helps his mental health, along with meditation. I always see Zachary as a student first. Mike Badetis is the new principal of University City High School, who first met Zachary on a Zoom call and noticed his leadership skills beaming through the screen right away. I'm amazed by his ability to navigate the way he does uh, between the adult world and then come back to school and just be a kid. But he does it with ease. He does it like a seasoned veteran. He won't be a teacher, but wants to study education policy and how he can improve it. He's already made his mark, according to school board president Richard Barrera. Everyone who runs for this office in the future and serves in this office in the future is uh, going to have now is confidence um, from your example. Zachary closed his remarks after being sworn in with this statement. We deserve an education system that is for the students and by the students. And I promise that I'm going to spend every day that I serve on the Board of Education and beyond fighting for just that. That is something no one questions. M.G. Perez, KPBS News. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program. Shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Mexican musician Javier Batiste could very likely have been world famous had he headed north of the border with his good friend and bandmate Carlos Santana back in the 60s. But instead, the guitar player and singer went south to Mexico City. Batis now lives in Tijuana, where he still plays shows, makes records, and runs a music school. In a new episode of Port of Entry, host Alan Lilienthal talks to Batis about his influence on Carlos Santana and other musicians over his decades of making music. So over the years, Javier has helped hundreds of musicians in Mexico learn how to play electric guitar, including, back in the 50s and 60s, Carlos Santana. But Javier says no one really taught him how to play. He says his mom showed him how to play his first four chords, but beyond that, he says his ability to play music is a gift from above. I learned from God. God gave me a talent, a special talent. He showed me how to play the guitar and sing. And then he showed me how to teach the other people, share my knowledge. 
So I am very grateful, very blessed, you know. Do you remember the first time you picked up a guitar? Do you have a memory of that? Well, I don't remember yesterday, so don't ask me anything. <laughs> um, yeah, and so I remember when, when uh, I started asking, as a little, little itsy-bitsy kid, asking for some from instruments because I wanted to sing, because I came here to sing. And so, and so I got saxophones and flutes and drums and pianos and guitars and basses, and you know. By 10, I was playing everything. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. But the guitar had a special... The guitar, I tell you what. By 10, I was playing and singing everything. Jorge Negrete and Pedro Fuentes music, you know. Sure, me de comer de esa tuna. Me de comer esa tuna. Me de comer esa tuna. Me de comer esa tuna. It was around this time that Javier had a real light bulb moment when it came to his future musical career. He was about 10 years old when he remembers his mom calling from her bedroom. It was late at night, and she wanted Javier to turn off the radio that someone had left on. So I got out of my bed and went to the living room to turn off the radio. And then I got a little baby. I love my baby. What is this? The blues. T-Bone Walker. Yes, I love my baby. Then I turned it really, really down and I, I put my head to the speaker and my mama, do you turn it up? Yeah, ma, you know. I'm gonna change my way of living, baby. This was 1958 and black music wasn't playing on the radio in the States, but at 10 o'clock, at night, the Mexican radio used to go off, and on the Mexican radio, they used to broadcast all this beautiful, beautiful music. And so every night, every night, every night, every night, I used to turn on the radio. Tibon Walker was the first guitarist and blues singer that I heard. Yes, I love you. And then Elmore James. And then Sunny Boy Williams. You got to help me, baby. I can't do it all by myself. B.B. King. You a real wild man, woman. Johnny Hooker. One bourbon, one scotch, and one bill. Jimmy Reed. Baby, i and this body waters. You know, you change your mind. You know, I won't go home. No, I ain't going. Javier was hooked. He wanted to listen to the blues all day, every day, and not just wait around for the late night radio show. So he started crossing the border to buy records at a vinyl shop in downtown San Diego. I started getting my Elmore James, my, you know, Robert Johnson. All the, the, the beautiful blues musicians. And uh, so I started singing that music here on the radio. And by the eight, that time, it was really easy because there were only three chords to the songs. The blues, you know, three chords. Es como el corrido, two chords to the corrido, no? 
So to the, to the, to the blues, three chords. Then I started learning, I speak English, I started learning the words up to the, to the music, but it's really simple. Too sad to be alone. It's so inconvenient to be alone, you know? So sad to be lonesome. Too much inconvenient to be alone. By the age of 12, Javier started a band called the TJs. And so I, I, I was very famous with the TJs, and I started, you know, working on the, nice, the very nice places with the weddings and the, and the quinceañeras and all that stuff. And I played like I play right now, man, because it was a God gift, you know, a gift from God. The way I play, it's not easy to find somebody the way I play. And it just immediately came through you, like it was. Immediately, man, you know, and so, I got, you know, really famous, and then we used to go to the, to the Battle of the Bands in San Diego against the Rhythm Airs and the, and the guys from over there who were really, really good, and we used to win all the battles. We were really good. One day, Javier and the TJs were playing a gig at a park in downtown Tijuana. And that's when Javier met a kid named Carlos Santana. I used to play with the TJs at 12 o'clock at Sunday, Sunday afternoons, 12 o'clock, you know, at the daytime. And I, we used to pack the place free, listening to the little kids playing the guitar like mothers would do it. And now, uh, <laughs> And then Carlos' mother saw me play and went to pick up her kid. She brought him. He said, the first time I heard Javier Batis had to play, I got the way he played and studied and made a sound from his music to my music. I mean, he's saying that he got my music to play his music. But when you hear him, you hear me, but when you hear me, you hear him, and I mean, come on. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. 
This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.